Maybe my favorite preacher of all time, Chuck Swindoll, he shared the following story one time uh, of a test that was conducted by a university. And the test went like this. There were, there were 10 students admitted into a room and uh, an adult in there that seemed like he was in charge drew three lines, obviously of various length, on, on the board, and then just directed the students to raise their hand when he pointed to the longest line. Seems easy enough. Now, nine of the students in the room, these ranged in different sessions from elementary through high school age, nine of the students that were in the room were in on the experiment. Only one was sort of the test subject, sort of the stooge. And the nine who were in on it were instructed to raise their hand when the man pointed to the second longest line and not raise their hand when he pointed to the actual longest line. And the researchers wrote, they, they found that 70, a full 75% of the time, here's what happened when he pointed to the obviously not the longest line. The one stooge would always raise his or her hand, look around and see that they were the only one, and guess what they would do? They would drop their hand. Then the instructor would point to the second longest line. Nine kids would raise their hand, and the other one would sort of sheepishly raise his hand. They concluded most young people, but I don't think it stops with young people, Most young people would rather just go along with what everyone else is doing, even if they know it's not right. That's kind of a scary experiment about the human condition. It can be scary to go it alone. Courage, though, courage is the ability to do what is right, even when it's scary. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to do the right thing when the fear is there. And that's a very important distinction. In fact, I'm convinced if something isn't at least a little bit scary, it takes no courage. That's why most of the stuff that I see posted on social media, even if it's kind of, you know, pointed, even if it's you know, seems like the person maybe thinks they're being courageous and saying it. I don't think any of it's courageous because there's nothing scary about sitting behind your phone or computer screen and saying what all of your friends will agree with and go, yeah, way to go. But living in the real world, according to our faith, that takes some courage. Because our faith, living by our faith, means we have to trust that a God we can't see, that a faith system we can't like explicitly prove, we have to believe that, that living according to what this invisible God told us in this book is best, we have to live like that's ultimately, actually going to be best. Even when no one else in the world would think it would make a lick of sense. 
living by our faith can cost us professionally, monetarily, financially, can cost us socially. It can be lonely. It can be scary. But our faith tells us it will always ultimately be worth it. This morning, we're going to read the story, a rather long story, of a great example of, of one man's courageous faith. It's a story of a man named, uh, well, let me tell you about his dad first. Let me get you caught up with where we're at. It's been two weeks since we opened the book of 1 Samuel because we took a break for Christmas. So here's where we are at. Um, the first king of Israel, a guy named Saul, he has just failed to walk in courageous faith. He had an opportunity to do the right thing, even though it was scary. Here was the situation. Uh, his army was vastly outnumbered in a terrible situation, and he had been told by God, do nothing until the prophet Samuel shows up and tells you what to do. But King Saul was watching his army desert soldier by soldier. And his fear outweighed his faith. Practically speaking, the smart thing to do was hurry up and get on with it. So he jumped the gun. He failed. Then when he was confronted with that failure, he refused to own it. He made excuses. He blamed everyone but himself. He justified. He rationalized. He projected. And because of that... In the previous story to today's, God told the king through Samuel that the monarchy had been taken away from his family. No one else in Saul's family will ever be king because of last week's passage. And the last thing we read in this book, 1 Samuel 13, 15, the prophet Samuel left King Saul. And that leaving was both literally and sort of figuratively, symbolically. King Saul has decided, I don't need God to tell me what to do. I can figure this out. I can probably do what's better. And so the prophet Samuel said, well, good luck. Now you're on your own. And he walked away. Today, the first half of the passage, we're going to see how Israel's doing under Saul's leadership and then we're going to see a real contrast between King Saul and his son, Jonathan. In a way, it's a shame that King Saul, that the monarchy was taken away from his family because Jonathan would have made a great king. He really would have. But when our screen wakes back up, we are going to read together our passage and see what we can learn about what God can do through one man's courageous faith. This is 1 Samuel chapter 13. Beginning in verse 16, and it reads this way. Now Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with them were staying in Geba of Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Ophrah in the land of Shual, and another company turned toward Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border, which overlooks the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. 
Now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. So all Israel had to go down to the Philistines to get their metal work done, each to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. The charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, and the axes, and to fix the hose. So it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan did have swords. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Chapter 14. Now, the day came that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the Philistines' garrison that's on the other side. But Jonathan did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah, under the pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, and the people who were with him were about 600 men. And Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's father, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh, was wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, the name of the other was Seneh, or Seneh. The one crag rose to the north opposite of Michmash, and the other rose in the south opposite Geba, verse 6. Then Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. His armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Turn yourself, and here I am with you according to your desire. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come down to you, then we will stand in our place. We won't go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands. That will be the sign to us. When both of them revealed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, Behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us and we'll tell you something. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet with his armor bearer behind him. And the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer put some of them to death after him. That first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about a half a furrow in an acre of land, verse 15. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among all the people of the Philistines, even the garrison. And the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked, so that it became a great trembling. Now Saul's watchmen in Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away, and they went here and there. Saul said to the people who were with him, Number now and see who has gone from us. And when they counted everyone, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. Then Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here, for the ark of God at that, was at, with, at that time with the sons of Israel. While Saul talked to the priest, uh, the commotion in the camp of the Philistines continued and even increased. And so Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. 
Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow among the Philistines. And there was very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who were with the Philistines previously, who went up with them all around the camp, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim, Ephraim heard that the Philistines had fled. Even they also pursued them closely in the battle. And so, or that is the way the Lord delivered Israel that day, and the battle spread beyond Beit Aven. That's our rather long story for the morning. And as I said, what we just read before the verse before this, two weeks for us, but just one verse saw uh, the prophet Samuel leaving Saul. And the first half of this passage lets us know that the prophet might have left King Saul, but the dire military situation has not left King Saul. He's in just as big of a pickle as he was two weeks ago when we were studying. Here's what we are reminded today. The Philistine threat is still very real. The, the Israel is vastly outnumbered. Most of his troops have either run away and hid, or some of them even defected, we learn today. They crossed and said, well, we'll fight for them. They look like they're going to win. Then uh, the Philistines had sent out, most translations say something like raiders or raiding parties. There's a cool Hebrew word. The, the word is destroyers. That doesn't sound good, does it? So three groups of destroyers are marauding their way in different directions. Things are bad. So they're vastly outnumbered and the Philistines are getting aggressive. That's bad, but it gets worse. They're not only outmanned, they're also, as we would say it, outgunned. In verses 19 through 23, we learn that the Israelites didn't have real weapons. They didn't have swords. They didn't have armor. Because for so many decades of Philistine domination, the Philistines had like this ancient version of gun control. They didn't, uh, they didn't allow blacksmiths in Israel. Only Philistine people could be blacksmiths. So uh, that they could make sure the Israelites weren't making weapons, or at least not very many. So the Philistines have armor. They have swords. Uh, the Israelites have like clubs and pointy sticks and stuff like that. There's very few swords, although Saul and his son Jonathan have swords and, and apparently armor. So they're outmanned. They're, in our language, they're, they're outgunned. But it gets worse. They're also extremely poorly led. We're going to skip verse 1 of chapter 14 for just a second. Consider verses 2 and 3 of that chapter. Here's what we're told in chapter 14, verses 2 and 3. As was common in those days and in that part of the world, King Saul had an outdoor headquarters. There's about 600 men there. And... We're told a little bit about his leadership council. We're told that he's got this guy named Ahijah who was wearing an ephod. This is an ephod. That lets us know he's dressed like a priest. But in, when we're introduced to him, he's not called a priest. We're just 
told he's dressed like a priest. Because putting on the uniform doesn't make someone fit to fulfill the role, right? Like, I could dress up like your doctor, but you don't want me removing your appendix or anything like that, probably, just even though I might be wearing the right costume. Well, that's Ahijah. And our author goes out of his way to let us know what family this guy is from. And it's significant. It's been a long time since we read about Eli and Phineas, Phineas's brother, Hophni. It's clear back at the beginning of this book. They're three of the worst priests that Israel's ever had. They died on the same day. They're the guys that decided to use the Ark of the Covenant like a magic box, right? Maybe God will make us win if we have the magic box with us. God rejected them. Well, those three men, Eli, Phineas, and his brother Hophni, they died on the same day. And back then we were told Phineas' wife was pregnant. She went into labor. She had a son. His name was Ichabod. And so Ahijah is from that family. Here's why that's significant. You remember what I told you just happened right before this passage started? What's the last thing we read in the last passage? Somebody left King Saul. Who was that? It was the prophet Samuel. So King Saul knows, man, maybe I've messed up. I don't have any direction from God. So he tries to find the next best thing. He tries to resurrect the old priesthood. And so he gets a relative of that old family. He apparently has some of the religious articles around. Get dressed up, put the costume on, and maybe I can still have some direction from God that way. Remember, just because you put on the outfit doesn't make you good help. So right now, here's if just if you're keeping score at home, as they used to say, here's where Israel's at. They are facing a cantankerous and aggressive enemy that that far outnumbers them. They not only outnumber them, they outgun them. They have far superior weapons. And Israel is led by a king whose line is being rejected by God and a fake wannabe priest whose line was rejected by God two generations ago. Does that sound like a good situation? It's not supposed to. This is bad. And inside of that story is where we read the story of Jonathan's courageous faith. King Saul's oldest son and and maybe top military commander, Jonathan, he decides in verse 1 of chapter 14, that he wants to take his armor bearer. And, and that is what it sounded like, but it's a little more than what it sounds like. Um, the armor bearer would be the guy who carried uh, Jonathan's armor and like sword. But it's also a, like an adjutant and a very close advisor and, and friend. So he's just going to take him and they're going to head out on a little secret mission against an outpost of Philistines. According to verse 1, Jonathan didn't even tell his dad what he was doing. We're not told why he didn't tell his dad, but I think I know why he didn't tell his dad. Because Jonathan knows his dad. 
Jonathan knows his dad is not motivated the way Jonathan is motivated. Jonathan is motivated by courageous faith. King Saul is motivated by pragmatism. You know what pragmatism is? Pragmatism is just you look at the situation you are in and just sort of practically speaking, logically speaking, what do you think would make things work out the best for you? That's pragmatism. It's not that being pragmatic is always wrong. There's often wisdom in pragmatism. But being led, being purely pragmatic, will at some point butt heads with being led by faith. Always. Always. And what Jonathan plans is about the farthest thing from pragmatic you could come up with. Here is... Here's a summary of Jonathan's plan. This is all in verses 4 through 10. So here's his plan. Um, First, the setting of this, the the Philistine garrison in question here is near a town called Michmash at a a pass through these mountains. Okay, so passes are very strategic because it's one of the few places you can easily, you know, pass through the mountains without having to climb over everything. So he's got his eye on this. They're easily defended. Apparently, Jonathan has figured out it's relatively lightly defended, this one pass. So he wants to take it. Now, to get from where Jonathan is down in the low valley up to the pass and then onto the high plain, there are two, what we would probably call cliffs or crags. They are, here's their names, Bozes and Sinet. They're basically called Slippery and Thorny. So take your pick on which one of those you'd rather climb up. Go all slippery. We'll attack him. Um, that's the setting. Beginning in verse 4, Jonathan says, all right, here's the plan. I'm going to take just two men. And we're going to attack far superior numbers that have the far superior ground. They have the high ground. According to verse 8, Jonathan wants to make sure the enemy sees them coming. Okay, it's the opposite of a sneak attack. There's no element of surprise. And then he says, we're only going to fight if they let us exhaust ourselves climbing up old slippery or old thorny before we get up there. If they abandon the high ground, the plan's off. But if they say, hey, you guys, this will be fun. Come on up. We'll take that as a sign that God is going to deliver them into our hands and we'll fight. Now, practically speaking, that's a terrible plan. They are not teaching this one at West Point. Okay? So why do something like that? Jonathan will tell us in my favorite verse of this passage. It is the heart of this passage. It's verse 6. And it reads this way, Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come on, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or few. That's so fantastic. I just love it. Let's visit about this verse a little bit. First, 
When Jonathan says, let's go over there to those uncircumcised fellows, he's not just like uh, using an insult that they can't hear. That's not what this is. He's not making fun of them. He's reminding himself and his armor bearer, we are the ones who are in a covenant with Almighty God. More on this in a couple of weeks, but God chose Israel because he wanted to deliver a Messiah, but God chose Israel, picked Israel, and gave Israel this land where this battle is happening. Not because they're superior, more moral, prettier, or anything. Because he promised. And one of the signs of being in that covenant family was the circumcision of the males. And so Jonathan just says, we are the ones who belong to the people that this place was promised to. Jonathan always wants to act according to what is good within the covenant he lives in with his God. So he wants to do something good according to that covenant. Now that being said though, Jonathan uses a very important word next. The word is, perhaps. Let's go over there. It's good. It agrees with the covenant that God has given us because God gave us this land. So let's go over there and act on that covenant. Perhaps the Lord will make this work out for us. Does Jonathan have have assurance that this particular plan will work out the way he would like? No perhaps carries with it the understanding that perhaps he will, but perhaps he won't. You know, our faith still works like that. In some ways, we have a for sure faith. But while we're waiting for the for sure, we live in a lot of perhaps. Does that make sense? The pragmatic parts of us want to know, we want assurance how everything will work out before we try a perhaps. Even if it's a perhaps, God will be glorified in this. Perhaps He will do something awesome. And we don't have any right to claim and name and whatever all that other stuff is because we believe so hard we're going to claim this and then God somehow is obligated to do it. That stuff is all hooey. Our faith looks like this, perhaps. Now God is obligated to do what He has promised and He will do every single bit of it. But we live in a lot of perhaps and Jonathan understood that. Jonathan knew he couldn't obligate God to do what he wanted. But don't miss the last thing from this verse that Jonathan is sure of. And that's this. What, what human reasoning, what human circumstances believe about a given situation, what is pragmatic or not, has no bearing on what God will actually do. Here's how Jonathan says that. He says, Here's what I know. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Jonathan has decided it would be good for Israel and the covenant we are under if we had that pass through the mountains up there. Now, 
if Israel attacks that, God's going to decide whether that's what God wants to do. And it doesn't matter if we take two guys up there or 2,000 up there. God is going to decide what happens up there. So Jonathan says, it's like Jonathan is saying, God might do something awesome here and he might do it through us. And how will we know unless we act? One of the commentaries I read as I study 1 Samuel is from a guy named Dale Davis. And he wrote this. This is good to remember. A few servants of God willing to do what faith requires is more powerful than a whole lot of people who are willing to do anything else. A few servants of God who are willing to do what faith requires is more powerful than a whole lot of people who are willing to do anything else. And in verse 7, I love verse 7 too. His armor bearer friend says this, do all that you have in mind. Now keep in mind, the rest of the plan is down here. The armor bearer hasn't even heard the whole plan yet. But when he hears Jonathan say, I want to do something that God's going to have to come through, that's going to require real faith. And I believe God will. Perhaps, and perhaps that's correct. The armor bearer says, do whatever you have in mind. And then he says something that means literally something like this. You go ahead. I am with you in the same way your own heart is with you. That's a friend. Sometimes God asks his faithful to be courageous completely alone. He does. He did that, uh, he did that with Daniel. He did that uh, with Stephen. He did that with Jesus. He did that with Jeremiah. He may do that with you or me. And if God decides that's what's best, then it's best for you or me to go it alone in some scary thing. But boy, isn't it great when God gives us at least one person who will stand shoulder to shoulder with us and say, you, I believe in whatever this vision you have. This seems scary, but I want you to know I am with you in this because I think it would glorify God if he does it. I think it's good to have someone like that, which means it's good to be someone like that. The rest of the passage, I'll kind of go quickly through it, is first... Um, we see Jonathan's plan in action. They uh, make themselves known to the Philistines. So maybe, I don't know, they just walk back and forth and do this number until they're spotted. Uh, and the Philistines start uh, mocking them. Oh man, some Hebrews have come out of their holes. Uh, and they say, come on up here, we'll teach you a thing or two. That's, that's kind of the idea. Uh, and Jonathan says, green light. We said that was what we wanted to hear. So they climb up old Slippery or old Thorny, whichever one it is. And the two of them kill 20 armed Philistine soldiers by themselves. Does that sound impossible to you? 
If it does, good. You've been paying attention. If you, if you want to look for a reason why this could happen, well, they're probably drunk or maybe some of them were asleep. Like it was like George Washington attacking the Hessians. Do you know that story? Waited till Christmas, right? If, you, if, you, if you're looking for something like that, it's because, like me, you're usually pragmatic. I need to know how this would work out before I'll even believe it. If you think that seems impossible, like you're getting the point. That's the point. Jonathan wanted to do something that agreed with the covenant he was in with God. It was a good thing, but God was going to have to actually do it. And God did it. That's the point. And so, God looks good. The Philistine army uh, panics because of this. The Philistine army, remember these ancient armies, they think there's two battles going on all the time. The one that goes on on earth and then the gods of the two countries fighting it out in the unseen world. They think, uh-oh, that powerful Hebrew God has started to fight against us. They're exactly right. And so they panic and they start scattering everywhere and Jonathan has won a victory and they've got to pass through the mountains they can get behind enemy lines this is great the time is to act is right now right well now let's find out what Saul is doing because this passage is a contrast between son and father the son who acts according to courageous faith and the dad Who's always pragmatic. Verse 16, the scene shifts back to Saul. He, his lookouts come and say, King Saul, the Philistine army is melting away in every direction. And he says, hey, figure out who did this. They figure out it's your son, Jonathan. He and his armor bearer are up there alone. Somehow they've got the whole army on the run. And Saul says, man, I need some more information. I need some Moorish, but what's going to happen to me if I do this? Like, that's your son. And this is the right time to act. And so he gets the fake priest in his little costume and bring the magic box. When he, when he tells the priest to withdraw his hand, what's going on there? Like, the original audience wouldn't have to have this explained, but inside the priest's little pouch were different colored stones called the Urim and the Thummim, and sometimes God allowed Israel to discern his will by, it was kind of like a casting of lots kind of thing in there. Uh, this is not one of those times because it's not a real priest and God's not in, in this idea, but maybe they get the right draw. I don't know what it is, but the point is Saul doesn't want to do even the right thing, even the smart thing, unless he has some kind of assurance on what's best for me. My version of what's best for me. They must get the right draw. Saul does turn his army loose. The Philistine army is still in total confusion. The route is on. Um, and then something else kind of interesting happens. All of the Israelite soldiers who had deserted and defected they decide, oh, wait, the Israelites, we're winning now? Oh, okay, well, which way to the front? There's a whole bunch of before. I'm not fighting. Take this job and shove it. There is no way I'm standing here. I didn't come here to get myself killed. And then it's like, oh, wait, we're winning. Which way to the fight? 
That kind of makes me mad. But you know, I think that's okay. I think that's how, I think that's how the life of faith in God's people works a lot of times. It works like this. There's a few people with big faith who are willing to do what is scary but is right and would honor the Lord if he comes through. And when God starts to come through, the more pragmatic, get in line and say, hey, let's go there. Let's try that. That's the way life works and we can not like it. Or we can accept worker bees and say, come on, plug in. And that's the story of how God rescued Israel. And that's the story of this contrast between a cowardly, pragmatic king and his faithfully courageous son. And the lessons from this passage, the story is kind of confusing, to be real honest. But when you understand the story, the lessons, I think, become pretty obvious. And here they are. First, the world can get really scary, but God is never outnumbered. I don't care. I mean, I care. Don't get me wrong. But how about this? No matter how dark it seems the world gets, no matter how hard it seems the world gets, no matter how much it seems like the bad guys outnumber the good guys and the bad guys are in control, God is never outnumbered. No matter how much God's people seem to be uh, cowering, God ain't scared. He ain't scared. And neither should His faithful be. And maybe that's wrong too. It's not wrong to be scared. Maybe we should have the courage to do what is right which agrees with the covenant we are in with our God, even though it's scary. Second, this this passage reminds us that God often, God can do whatever God wants to do, however God wants to do it, but He's proven or and or that God often does some of His best work through individuals who are willing to do those things that might seem crazy that might there seem very scary like i don't know how this is going to work out if god doesn't go through come through this is going to be really embarrassing this is going to be really costly i'm going to look like a real failure i'm going to lose money i'm going to lose friends i'm going to lose whatever but i think this is the right thing to do and god be with me here i go god often does his best work through folks who are willing to do things that take lots of courage. So this passage teaches us number three, don't wait for guarantees. Do something good according to what God says would be good that God must accomplish. It's so easy to just be pragmatic. This reminds me of telling someone else the gospel, telling someone else about your faith. Those of us who know it, who believe it, who want others to believe it, and who struggle to share it. You know why that is? Because we're pragmatic. 
we want to guarantee, we want to know how this is going to work out for me before I will share. Right? I want to wait for just that right conversation so that I'm guaranteed that person won't think I'm an idiot. Won't call me a fool and run away. Sometimes it's best to not wait for those guarantees. Do something I know God says is good and see if he will come through. Perhaps he will. Now, perhaps he won't. And that's okay. I'll figure out how to glorify him then too. And fourth, I think this passage teaches us that we need to be someone who will stand alongside a faithful friend as a faithful friend. I love the armor bearer in this story. He's unnamed. I hope to meet him in heaven someday. I'd love to hear his version of this story. God sometimes asks us to go it alone. But man, is it great when we don't have to. When we have just at least one other person who's in this with us. God's never outnumbered. He is waiting, though, for people of courageous faith to do good things. What he says is good. Perhaps he will come through. Don't wait for the guarantees. We live in a perhaps world while we wait for our sure thing. Our guarantee is later. We got to wade through the perhaps while we wait for the guarantee. Pray with me. Father God, thank you for the testimony of Jonathan, a man of courageous faith. God, uh, sometimes we live a lot more like Saul than we do like Jonathan. I know you, you haven't asked us to go attack other people physically. That's not at all a part of our covenant. But we do live in a battle. And we live in a world full of needs, spiritual needs and physical needs. And, and, and God, I don't know what you would ask each of us to do in this coming year that might be scary to us, that might be difficult to us, that might make us feel vulnerable but would you make clear what you are nudging us to do and help us to approach that like Jonathan, to do it in a way where you are going to have to come through and you will get all the credit and, and have hearts that say, perhaps God will do something awesome here and how will I know unless I jump? Or in this case, unless I climb. And God, Help us to be the kind of friends that will stand arm in arm with, with our brothers and sisters and live courageously together to see what you might do in, in 2022 if we will live by courageous faith and see what perhaps you might do in some of those things. Be glorified in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and we'll finish. All right, now let's get pragmatic about this thing. What if in 2022 in, in this church, what if there were 20 families who decided to do 
individuals within families, families together to do that scary thing that God's going to have to come through. Perhaps He will, perhaps He won't. How many of those things would God do amazing things through? I don't know. Perhaps He will. Perhaps He won't on every one of them. Pragmatically speaking, what are the chances, though, that we would see God do something amazing if 20 families do do those things? Do you think we increase our chances? I think we do. Think about it. Love you guys. See you next week. See you you next year.